Hey everybody, this is Nate Smoyer and you're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. This is the show where we sit down with the leaders in real estate and technology to find out what they're doing to transform the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. If you've got an interest in real estate and technology, stick around, you're in the right place. Okay, we've got a great show for you guys today. I have the CEO and founder of The House Monk, AJ Kumar, on the show. And we're talking really two things. First, we're going to talk about The House Monk and what they're doing. And, you know, the way, you know, we kind of describe it is really it's an app that uh, and solution they created to make the experience of being a tenant better. Uh, this is, you know, tenant to tenant communication, uh, building services, security, payments, all that. What's really fascinating, and this is really kind of new territory for the Technos podcast, um, because we're going a little more international. And this is going to be an intentional move for the next year as we start to feature uh, guests from outside of the US. Um, they're already in nine different countries and doing, you know, tenant rental management. Uh, through an app. And that's very impressive because as we'll talk through on the show, there's significant cultural norms and uh, tendencies that change from country to country. In addition to that, um, you know, AJ's uh, talks through some of the reasons that the house monk has actually recently shifted more into the co-living market. And they just report, they just released the 2019 Global Co-Living Report. It's a 61-page document that details what the global opportunity is in in co-living, which country is leading that from a market uh, size of $6.8 billion, and what that looks like for the U.S., so I think you'll like this. It's a, it's a good one. I thought we had a great conversation. And uh, uh, kick back, uh, enjoy the show. Well, hey, AJ, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much, Nate, for having me here. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you and I got a chance to reconnect. Um, I know it's been a little bit. So uh, before I yep. go into uh, what we're going to be talking about on today's show, I want you to go mm-hmm. ahead, introduce yourself, let everyone know who you are and what you do. Definitely. Uh, so I'm Ajay Kumar, co-founder and CEO of The House Monk. We've been in the prop tech industry for about six years now. We started off in the brokerage tech space where we tried to build a platform for real estate brokers to uh, take their work on the go on their phones. Uh, that didn't quite work, but uh, we quickly pivoted into the property management industry where we were helping property managers give a better tenancy experience. And since then, you know, we've kind of like scaled up the scope of what we do. Uh, into the real estate customer experience management business. Uh, To give you a quick sense of, you know, what we do, uh, we've noticed that there's a lot of companies which are coming in, which are managing space in a very creative way. It can be co-living companies, student housing companies, co-working companies, even, you know, rental property management companies. And all of these companies, they have strong challenges in ensuring that they give a good customer experience, right? So what we help them in doing is we help them streamline the entire experience and bring it onto one platform. Mm-hmm. So right from the day a potential customer discovers their brand to the day they transact and possibly become a tenant and all the way through the tenancy life cycle, whether it's uh, monthly rental billing, whether it's customer support management, uh, whether it's communication and you know like creating uh, and organizing events, all the way through to exit management, we've built a single platform that uh, that their team can use to you know help manage all of these different experiences that they can give for customers. And mm-hmm. our system is very open. So 
if any of these businesses have a pre-existing mobile app, they can integrate all of these services onto the mobile app. And even in case they don't have an app, you know, we help them come out with an app as well, which, you know, their customers can use. So, you know, that's kind of, uh, you know, what we do. Uh, the biggest pain points that, you know, we've kind of been solving is that a lot of uh, customers, when they deal with, uh, you know, co-living companies or property managers or, you know, any of these other businesses, is that the experience becomes pretty bad, pretty bad, pretty quickly because it's typically multi-channel. Right. Sometimes you have to go to their website to do something. Sometimes you have to call up someone to yeah. do something. Yeah. Sometimes you drop an email. Sometimes you call into customer support. So it becomes a multi-channel experience. And first is customers don't want that, which is a very, very important thing. They want a single channel of you know communication with businesses that serve them. And on the other hand, for your own team, uh, different teams are using different uh, you know suites of software. Right, your sales team is using something else. Your support team is using something else. For communication, you're using something else. Yep. And on both sides, you know, it's such a big letdown that your customers don't win. Your own team is like, you know, pretty much confused. And at the end of the day, the most important thing, which is customer experience, starts going down. Uh, it's extremely difficult in real estate, uh, you know, especially in property management and co-living businesses, because this is not a one-two week engagement. Right, your customers are going to be with you for months and months, possibly years as well. Ideally, so, <laughs> ideally, yeah. <laughs> if you do a good job, yeah, definitely, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's uh, so you're gonna have a very long relationship with customers, and it's not a very ephemeral relationship as well, right? So you're literally giving them a place to stay, right? So it's a very deep relationship. It's likely you're having the biggest share of their monthly expenditure, like you know, you have the biggest share of their wallet. So they expect, uh, you know, you to take uh, their business very seriously. Right. So given that it's it's high transaction, it's a very long uh, you know like life cycle. So it becomes very very important to give a great experience, and that's what we've been doing over the last few years. Yeah, you've just been sitting on your hands, uh, just kind of uh, kicking back with a little bit of mailbox money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> no. So I, I mean, I know you guys have been busy. So you know, for a little bit of background, you know, AJ and I we connected when I was early on my, my journey in prop tech. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I mean, I was, uh, doing my prospecting, building out some, uh, some lists of companies that I wanted to work with, came across the house monk and, you know, we had an opportunity to connect, uh, you know, find out what they were doing. And so I'm excited to, to kind of go into this show here. Cause I know that you guys are doing a ton of things. I have so much more respect not that I didn't respect your business then, but I have so much more respect now because of course, you know, now that I'm really working on the other side of the product, not just on the marketing right. of prop tech companies, but working on right. the other side of a product that handles that tenant life cycle. Um, yeah, yeah. There are so many components to build in for and the, yeah. the number of edge cases <clears throat> is unlimited. The, the, it is. To, to build a product that is both uh, elegant and yet effective is really yep. difficult because the edge cases are, are, are unlimited. So, um, we won't go too far into that, but like, l- l- let's kind of back up a little bit. What is your background that led you down this journey of, of building, oh. uh, you know, an app to handle these, these challenges in managing tenants and their relationships to where they live? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I don't actually come from a real estate background, but I do come from a tech background. I was working for an analytical product company for many years okay. before I started out into the real estate space. Uh, broadly, we were helping Fortune 500 companies make better sense of their data. So this was mm-hmm. in 2011, 12, 13, so around that time. 
what happened was when I was looking for a house myself when I was working there, I had a really bad experience with some of the brokers, uh, you know, who helped me find the house. Yeah. And even eventually after that, even when I was staying in the property, uh, so in India, like uh, collecting rent by cash is a big thing. So a lot of people, a lot of landlords here don't allow you to make online payments. They, you know, they insist that you know you pay them in cash. So every month I had to go why, to the landlord. Why is now. that? Why why not? Why don't they want uh, online payment? Ah, uh, so you can avoid tax because when you uh, collect it okay. in cash, it never comes into the system. So yep. uh, that's a, that's a very big problem here as well. Uh, so every month I had to go to the landlord's house and you know like give him the money in cash, which was obviously not an ideal experience. Right. And so this uh, this got me thinking that hey maybe there is something that we could do over here. And that's kind of when, you know, we got into the brokerage space. Um, One of the things that we do, um, I think very interestingly is that whenever we approach any industry, uh, we actually start by doing services first. We don't jump directly into the tech, right? So even when we built the brokerage platform, we actually started by becoming a real estate broker ourselves. So me and my co-founder, we started, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the company. And even before we started working on the product, we started servicing customers. We started helping people rent homes, we started helping people buy homes, we started, you know, uh, uh, property owners sell. So you uh, put you know, yourself through the ringer. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. So that was very coincidental. So that was the first time. So we were actually doing that mainly to ensure that some services revenue could keep coming in while we were building the product. But what we realized is that, hey, that should not, uh, even if that's not the aim, you should actually start by doing the service yourself because mm-hmm. you just get so much dirt on the market. Like you really understand what's happening on ground zero. So mm-hmm. when we learned the brokerage market inside out, we really understood uh, the mentality of landlords, like what tenants are looking for, what buyers are looking for, what sellers are looking for. Mm-hmm. So eventually, like we were able to understand what does a real estate broker actually do? And we were able to productize <laughs> that. Uh, I feel like that's quickly. a question that, that, you know, whether people want to be mean about it or not, like, I feel like that's a question that would come up. Like, what does a real estate agent do? <laughs> only, all they do is just sign a check or write an offer and then it's all good. Uh, and you know, look, I, I'm all about giving real estate agents a hard time and even leasing agents uh, yeah. as much as the next guy. But there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes. Awesome. So initially when I, uh, so when I got my house, right, like when I was still working for my previous company, I ended up paying a month's rent uh, to the agent, uh, you know, to find the house. And I felt that was exorbitantly high. I was not okay with that. And that was the biggest trigger for me uh, saying, hey, if this guy can make this much money, you know, like I should be able to make a lot more than that. And, you know, that that kind of like (laughs) gave me the push and nudge. But what I realized like six months into doing that is that, oh, it's not easy being a real estate broker. It's It's a tough job. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's not as easy as what it seems on the outside. It's not hey, like show two houses to you know one client and you walk away with a fat commission check. Uh, that's not how it works at all. Uh, it's really really tough being a real estate agent. So I had newfound respect, uh, you know. For so initially, I wanted to disrupt the brokerage market, but then quickly I moved on to a model where I wanted to enable the brokerage market, you know, help them <laughs> streamline, you know, how they were doing their business. So that was a big learning for me. It's funny how funny how that works, but I mean, you wouldn't have gotten that perspective and that filter had yeah. you not gone yeah. through the ringer. And I, you know, yeah. I, that's why I think about it. Like back when I was an agent, um, and it wasn't even that long ago, but like, and it wasn't for that long a time. Um, yeah. But the amount I learned in the short period of time that I learned, yeah, yeah, it's an unfair advantage to anyone else that's playing in our space yeah. that's never work those roles. It's very yeah. difficult yeah. 
to have the lens uh, of, of you know of what the agent is going through or what why yeah. the way some of the models or sets of business are set up and you know yep. for some that's fine you know they they don't want to do things the standard way but others you know I think it's important to have a, an in depth <clears throat> understanding you know of that yeah no when you're an agent you're always in the middle of transactions right and yeah. what's really important to understand is that uh, in the entire value chain. Uh, there is, you know, the search and discover, you know, which which typically starts online or, you know, at least discovery in a lot of cases is, you know, yeah. going increasingly online. But to go from search to discover to transact, that final jump is a very, very big jump, right? A lot of deals start dropping at the transaction stage. Either they're not able to work on, you know, what's the deposit going to be or once they see the house, uh, you know, in real life, they're not happy with, you know, the location or maybe they're yeah. not happy with how the space is optimized. They're not happy yep. with the neighbors. There's like so many things that happens at transaction. Um, that um, so I think that's one of the one of the more interesting problems in real estate to solve in itself. That a lot of information, right, over the last ten years has moved online. So now you can see the property online. You get a uh, you get a sense of the price online. You can see the neighborhood online. So many pictures, videos, three sixty degree views. You can whatever information you were getting offline now you get it online. But still, the transactions are fundamentally happening offline. And that's the reason why agents are still getting, uh, you know, whatever they're getting, whether it's in a sale transaction or whether it's in a, in a rental transaction. So I think as PropTech evolves more and more, like we do need to give a lot of thought into why aren't we able to completely bring, you know, transactions online? Like so much of the information, at least 80% of the information is online, but that is still not removing the need for people to go offline and see the property before they yeah. actually transact. So, so let, let, let's get down to brass tacks. So, you know, the house monk is, is really designed to enhance the tenant experience more yeah, so than, yeah. you know, it's not, you know, which then helps the landlord and building operator. Yep. Um, yep. And from what I remember, you know, from when we've talked and, and, you know, obviously I do my homework beforehand, you know, the house mm-hmm. monk was originally thought through for multifamily, like large multifamily buildings. Yep. 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 And so what are some of the key features that tenants uh, tend to use most? Uh, so the feature sets uh, obviously keep changing uh, from geography to geography. So currently we have active operations in about, I think, nine or 10 countries uh, where we have you know, paying customers. Where we notice, so let's say for a country like India, uh, visitor management is very, very, very commonly used. Uh, so to give you a sense of the market condition, we have a lot of big gated communities like or you know multifamily uh, properties as you uh, as you might refer right. to it which have upwards of 200 300 400 apartment units or condo yep. units within one particular facility yeah uh, so here security is a very important thing so one of our uh, product features is that there's a visitor management system where at the main gate uh, at, of the premises the security guards or you know the people who are manning the gate so they're given a mobile app through which they make entries of any visitors who are going to be you know, coming into the place. Mm-hmm. And that gives a notification on your app uh, as a resident. And you can, you can see the photo of whoever is you know, like actually coming in and you can accept the visitor or reject the visitor. Uh, so, that, yep. uh, so that's a very, very commonly used uh, feature. Especially now, given that uh, deliveries and everything is happening at home, whether it's ordering food or e-commerce or... You know, oh my gosh, my, not- our, our poor delivery... Like the little uh, package center that we have in our in our building, I mean they, uh, we don't even have. So I live in a uh, I rent a condo, 
Uh, and it's a nice building. I, I wouldn't mm-hmm. say we're, we're, I mean, feels like luxury to me, but we're not the high end luxury. And sure. um, our mail room is the dry cleaner. <laughs> because you know what? Two years ago, yeah, yeah. Two, two years ago, that was all the space they needed. Yeah, 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 yeah. And now, oh my goodness, it is stacked to the ceiling with boxes in yep. there. It's crazy. Yep, yep. It's crazy. It is, it is. And uh, so, also from a safety security perspective, uh, you know, that's a big challenge right? because you yeah. have possibly hundreds or thousands of people uh, whose IDs you've not verified who are entering and leaving your premises. So yeah. now what does that mean from a security perspective is a very, very important question that a lot of property managers have been thinking about. Yeah. So the visitor management uh, solution is one of the most highly used solutions uh, in our ecosystem. A close second is the option for the community to start talking to each other and you know start chatting with each other. So we have like a common, um, it, it's kind of like next door, but only for your apartment. Yeah. Right. So, so that's a very commonly used feature. Let, so let people, me ask you this, AJ. Is is um, do, first off, in India, do you guys have the? Do you segment your population like we do in the U.S., like millennials and baby boomers? Um. Yeah. So we have millennials and old people. So that's that's how we oh. refer to it over here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's so many because I don't know if you're familiar with the best of next door Twitter account. Uh, no, I've not. No. Oh, oh my yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Some people will take it. offense to this, but you know, I'm going to say it anyway because boomers are the most funny people ever <laughs> on next door. I mean, it's just amazing <laughs> thing uh, that that tend yeah, to go yeah. viral or like just crazy stuff. It, it uh, man, I just was I was just curious if it was similar. I, I just imagine, but that but that yeah. makes a lot of sense, right? So, like in my in, in our building, like I've never met some of my neighbors. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I hear the one above me, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but so, so this enables people if they want to like send out something to the neighbors, maybe they're doing a, a, a yep. potluck, maybe there's an event that yep. weekend, maybe yep. they saw something that seems suspicious and I want everyone to know. So it's a very quick neighborhood watch and it's instant connect to, to be able to send it out. Yep. To the neighbors. So what, um, carpooling is a very common use case. Oh, okay. uh, for people to you know, like, yeah, uh, you know, to to get to their offices together. Yep. So that's something that we notice all the time. Um, a lot of people invite, uh, you know, their neighbors to some kind of, you know, maybe like festivals that they're celebrating, or maybe their kids' birthday parties. Yeah. So that happens quite a lot. A lot of the property managers they try to keep the community active. So they have yep. some movie screenings going on in the clubhouse, you know, like every week, or you know, they have some kind of they've invited some kind of. Um, you know, they, they've kind of, they might have you know invited some some third party company to come in and organize a small event, and you know they invite yep. people through that. So yep. you know these are all pretty common use cases. Uh, you know, from a communication perspective. What what uh, you mentioned? You're in nine countries. Yeah, yeah. What what are the other countries besides India? Uh, so uh, India is obviously our home market, uh, but we have. Uh, Singapore, we have Malaysia, we have Thailand as well. So Southeast Asia is another market for us. Uh-huh. Middle East is another market for us. And uh, recently we got our first few customers in Europe and we have actually got a couple of them in the US as well. Okay. So, <clears throat> you know, and, and as actually one of the things that you and I originally talked about was like you guys expanding to the US. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I've talked with a few different people, uh, you know, and I don't see a lot of... Um, property management focused, you know, tenant landlord focused software companies leaving the U S and going into other countries. Yeah. 
Yep, Why yep, is yep. that? What's the hurdle that keeps U.S. companies from entering India? I mean, because especially what you talked about, the density. Yeah, yeah. On a whole nother level. Yeah. Well, there are a few reasons, right? So first is that, um, you know, financially, you really need to think, does it make sense? Because your, um, your return on every dollar that you invest into the U.S. market is pretty high. Because your customers are paying you in US dollars as well. But yep. when you start doing that, uh, let's say in India or Southeast Asia or, you know, like any of the emerging economies in the world, that ROI is immediately going to come down. Mm. So that's something that you really need to think about. Second thing is that you can't actually use the same product because the market dynamics are so different, which is something that we're learning as well. So now that we're trying to make the move from Asia to Europe and to the US, we're noticing that the market is fundamentally very different. And mm. you know, we're obviously doing a lot of tweaks to the product to ensure that uh, it can work there. So it's going to be the same thing for companies from the US who are looking at uh, Asia as well. You're going to have to change the product very, very, very deeply. Yeah. And uh, even otherwise, from a cultural perspective, uh, most emerging economies are not yet in a stage where the business owners will come to your website, uh, you know, maybe like sign up for a free trial. And if it works, they're going to put a card on file and, you know, you can just keep building them. That's typically not the expectation. Uh, they oh, want to meet okay. someone before they buy. Yeah, so you know, you need to understand that business software is fairly new, uh, right? So mm-hmm. it's not a twenty. So it's not like businesses have been doing this, you know, for 30, 40 years, and you know they've been using some software for twenty years, and now you know, like we're giving them an upgrade. You know, like hey, now you would yeah. do it through an on-premise solution. Now you can do it through the cloud. That's not actually what's happening. Invariably, people are moving from pen paper systems or maybe Microsoft Excel, right? So they're kind of moving away from that onto your solution. So it's a trust game more than anything else. So they really feel a lot more comfortable, uh, you know, if they come and, you know, if they can meet someone before they buy. Now, that becomes a challenge because uh, you have to have a large sales team uh, that can go out and meet customers, uh, you know, before you make a sale. And the ACVs are not that high. Right? So, so normally, typically, the rule of thumb is that if you can do 50,000 USD plus in ACV in the US market, mm-hmm. uh, typically you're okay to, you know, have a salesperson, you know, to go out and do the transaction, maybe a little lesser, but you know, that's typically the rule of thumb. But if you're looking at uh, Asian markets, you'll have to start employing salespeople even for 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 USD in, you know, in ACV as well. So that's, you're going to have to maintain a very large sales team. So that Got becomes it. a little bit of a challenge. Um, I, I think like another point that is often overlooked is that um, engineering and product companies in Asia are very, very competitive by themselves. Uh, there's a huge tech uh, revolution that's happening in India for sure because, you know, there are so many companies here that have come out and given that engineering is relatively lower cost uh, for an Indian company compared to an American company because we have an abundance of engineering talent here. Yeah. We keep seeing feature after feature after feature releasing, you know, month over month. So normally the products that wow. you might see over here are extremely feature rich. So it will definitely be very difficult for, uh, you know, like US companies to uh, to compete with that. So yeah, that's another reason why uh, it might not be in the best of interest, you know, to, so, you know, it's one thing if you've gotten as much juice out of the US market as you can, and now you're looking for, you know, what other markets can I approach? In that case, it makes sense. But, you know, if you maybe have like 5% penetration or 10% penetration into the US market, you should just stick there and, you know, get the most out of that market. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it, that that makes a lot of sense. I mean, for a lot of companies, if you even get, you know, uh, a fair amount of penetration into New York City, I mean, you're going to build a big business. Yeah, and yeah. 
you know, the, the unit economics are entirely different as you mentioned. And yeah, of course, yeah. you know, I think it's really impressive that you guys are in nine countries because even just, you know, even if they're all different from the U S and they have their own alignments, I mean, there's still significant differences there. I, I do want to shift yeah. a little bit. I'm glad we're talking international because I know that you guys are working on a pretty big project recently and it talks, you know, or at least alludes to some of the changes <clears throat> made in your product um, but you I, guys recently released the the global co-working report. I think that's co-living. the official title of it. Um, global co-living report. Yeah, yeah. Sixty one. Pa- <clears throat> excuse me. Sixty one pages of yeah. uh, pretty insightful information about the global market that is yep. clo- uh, co-living. Excuse me. And uh, I thought I thought we'll look at through this. So uh, first off, you know, fill me in. What is the house monk's role in co-living and Mm -hmm. what was the purpose of creating this uh, global report? Sure. Uh, So broadly, the house monk is a technology provider to the co-living industry. And uh, so we help them, we help co-living companies give a great tenancy experience. So once again, going back to what I was mentioning earlier, right from the time a potential tenant discovers a co-living brand, to when they actually transact and sign the lease and you know yep. all the way through their tenancy life cycle. Uh, we actually help them bring it onto a single platform, streamline their operations and give, a, give an enhanced customer and tenancy experience. So that's broadly like you know what we've been doing. Uh, how we find ourselves into this industry is that uh, co-living in India is, is, is pretty huge. So we have about, uh, I think we're touching about like 60 co-living operators who've set up shop over the last few years. Mm-hmm. And more than, uh, I think we're touching about 150,000 people are already staying in organized co-living facilities, right? And that number is pretty much, you know, increasing at about 70, 80% year over year. So the market is growing very, very quickly over here. And so that's something that, you know, we, we moved on that opportunity fairly quickly. So we got the first few clients in 2018 and, you know, through 2019, we've got a whole bunch of other co-living companies to sign up <laughs> for our offering. And that's kind of what, you know, we've been doing. So we've been helping co-living companies give a great customer experience and it's been going very well for us so far. Yeah. And, you know, for the people who are watching on Facebook Live, uh, I'm sharing the screen right now of the report so that they can get a view of it. And of course, I'll link to this report uh, back on the TechNest website, technest.io under Mm -hmm. the episode here once that's published. And I want to talk through some of the numbers here because some of this is... is, Pretty incredible, and then uh, you know you can fill in some color here. Uh, the yep. growth number of tenants living in in in, in a co living just in China, yeah, grown from one point eight million to two point nine million in the last two years. Uh, that's not only in China; that's globally. Oh, that's the, most. That, that's the global. Sorry, sorry, yeah, but yeah, yeah. The, but the dominance of that. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Is in China. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, 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 just the market size, right? So, um, yeah. the the actual market in in China, per the report here, is about six point eight, or just yeah. six point seven, six point eight billion with a B yep. billion yep. dollars. And for comparison yep. purposes, in the U.S., it's just over two hundred, so two hundred <clears throat> million. Yep. Um, yep. 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 Which is. I mean, that's not even, that's peanuts. 204 million yeah. is peanuts. Seven <laughs> billion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I thought was yeah. most fascinating, and maybe you can talk to, 
you know, there's some, and this, you mentioned it earlier, right? That the, the economics mm-hmm. are going to be different. Yeah. In the U.S., the average rent paid by each tenant per month in one of those co-living mm-hmm. is 1700 mm-hmm. Yep. Whereas in China, it's $200 a month. Yeah. And yeah, you have to have yeah. a fundamentally different business at that point. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, maybe I can start by talking a little about how co-living started in China and why it's, you know, at the scale that it is yeah. right now. And maybe we can talk about you know, some of these uh, differences that we're noticing in the report. Right. So uh, in China, co-living started, I think, around 2011, 2012. So they definitely moved on the opportunity a little earlier. But what's interesting is that I don't know if you've heard of this company called Liangjia. Uh, it's kind of like the Zillow of, um, you know, of China. It's okay. one of the biggest uh, you know, property marketplaces in China. And they saw an opportunity in managed rental housing. And they came out with what you're seeing right now, which is Z-Rooms, which is essentially a subsidiary of Liangjia, right? So when they actually got started, Z-Rooms had, obviously they had access to a lot of capital because you know, they were a subsidiary of a very, very big company. But more than that, they had access to an unlimited number of property owners and tenants who were all searching you know, for each other on the Liangia portal. So they were able to get supply and demand very, very quickly. And they were also able to, uh, you know, like they had access to capital as well. So they got off. Yeah. Uh, you know, so if I'm reading this correctly, Zerum has raised over a billion themselves. Yep. 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 yep, yep. So uh, I think around 2014 is when they kind of spun it off into a separate company. Um, but as I said, you know, by then they'd already like, you know, moved very, very quickly. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we need to keep in mind that uh, the scales of population in China is just very, very different from what we notice in Europe or in the US. So yeah. they kind of like had a great head start. Uh, they moved very, very well. Uh, a very interesting thing to keep in mind about uh, the Chinese ecosystem is that we've noticed time and again that Chinese entrepreneurs do not shy away from building operations intensive businesses. Uh, they don't they don't mind, you know, if it's not just a pure tech app, right? So they're okay to build out, you know, multiple layers of the value chain. And they've moved very, very quickly on the opportunity. So Zerooms right now employs close to about mm-hmm. 20,000 people, uh, you know, across their organization. Uh, the numbers are not that different for, you know, a lot of the other Chinese competitors as well. So it's a very interesting market in China. Yeah. And so, and then let's compare that to the U.S. where, you know, mm-hmm. in the report, it states the, the number of co-living operators. And obviously, I, I'm assuming that this means when you're saying operator, I don't know what the, the classification is, but yeah. we're talking larger operators. We're not talking about like the neighborhood yeah. co-living setup. So typically, uh, what we, uh, so we normally have, uh, so at least for this report, we've taken three parameters to define who an operator is. Uh, an operator needs to manage a minimum of 50 tenants. Uh, an operator needs to have his own, his or her own website yeah. uh, or, you know, some form of digital presence, uh, you know, to, to come out with a brand. Uh, or they should have raised some significant capital to build out the business. Right? We've, we've kept it as about a million dollars in capital, but as long as they have one of the, as long as they have two of the three, we've counted them as an operator. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, the, and the companies here, uh, you have, you've got listed as uh, Bungalow mm-hmm. and uh, Hubhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a whole bunch of others as well. There's, uh, there's Star City, there's Oli, there's Common. Uh, so co-living in the US is not that far behind, uh, but there's a lot of momentum that's happening right now. So interestingly, maybe, you know, talking a little bit about the US co-living market, um, you know, see, uh, one point to keep in mind, Nate, is that co-living is not a new industry industry per se, 
right? So yeah. people have been sharing flats with their friends, you know, for a very very long uh, amount of time. Yeah, uh, totally. What's really happening? Yeah, yeah. So what's really happening is that a lot of operators, as we call them, or you know, private businesses, have just thought, hey, maybe we can streamline and structure this ecosystem in a slightly better way, so that it can be a win-win, you know, for all stakeholders. So that's you know, it's more of formalization of an existing unorganized industry. Right? That's kind of what's been happening with co-living. Now, what we've noticed in the US is that uh, a lot of the guys like you know, Common and Ollie and you know, so many of the other guys, they're going after a purpose-built market. Now, what that means is that they're trying to go to real estate developers or you know, like landlords or property investors and they're trying to convince them to build a completely new facility from scratch for mm. the purpose of co-living. Right, uh, and when you do it that way, there's a lot of advantages, right? So, as a co-living operator, you can design the place. You can, you know, you can maximize uh, the ROI per square foot. You can, you know, make the building, uh, you know, where you you can foster interaction. You can have community spaces, all of mm-hmm. which you cannot do if you're just going to take an existing building and you know, like retrofit that, you know, into a co-living space, or you know, if you're going to like change the interiors a little bit and try to make that into a co-living. But the pros and cons of this is that when you go after the purpose-built model. Uh, you typically get, uh, you know, you can you have a say in the design. It can be done in a much better way. The yields are significantly higher. Uh, so typically, mm. we'll, we're, we're talking 7-8% is the typical yield in co-living assets. But if it's purpose-built, you can even get all the way up to 9 sometimes even 10%. If wow. you can, you know, like design the... Yeah, yeah. So really, really high yields. So from an investor perspective, you know, like it, it obviously makes a lot of sense to do that. Uh, so, but it's a very slow-to-move model. Right, so um, in a lot of companies who have, let's say, thousand to two thousand rooms or you know tenants currently that they're managing, they have almost five times or ten times of that supply which is captive, which is going to come onto the market over the next you know few years because mm-hmm. it's currently under construction. So the pro is that you, know, you can make a lot more money, you can you can you can give a much better tenancy experience, but you have to play a very very long game. So that's you know that those yeah. are the pros and cons of purpose building uh, you know co-living facilities. Uh, the strategy that a lot of Indian companies and a lot of Chinese companies have taken is they've not really gone after the purpose-built models. They've been signing existing landlords and existing buildings and they've kind of been like, you know, like repurposing that for co-living. So the tenancy experience might not be as high, but mm-hmm. you can move pretty quickly, you know, because there is existing supply. You don't need to build new supply. So that's one of the bigger reasons why, you know, it's moved very quickly over here and it's not moved that quickly in the U.S. Uh, I, I really appreciate that uh, that breakdown, um, uh, and th- there's obviously there's so much in this. Um, again, I'm going to link this report. Um, you know, for people who are listening that want to read this, uh, you'll find it on Technest.io, and um, just look for. I think this is going to be episode 67, uh, mm-hmm. 67 or 68. You can't quote me on it yet, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you'll be able to get that. Um, and I, I, you know, I would say, even if you're not working in co-living, this was really fascinating for me to read because the thing about this is if you're operating in single family rentals and the co-living space starts to speed up, I have to naturally ask, Hey, is this going to eat into my business? Is this going to, is this going to, are, are, are patterns and how people are renting going to shift enough to where it's going to eat them in yeah. business? Now, I think that for us in the US, we're probably a few years out on that if that would have happened. And I think really what you'll see is, you know, and, and AJ, you know, correct me where I go wrong here, 
but mm-hmm. I think we'll mm-hmm. see in, you know, very dense urban settings, obviously mm-hmm. New York city starting really the one that'll yep. get the most. And then yep. you'll have other, uh, forward, you know, cities, you'll have San Francisco, LA, yep. Seattle, uh, maybe yep. Chicago, Yep. adopt some of this, um, sort yep. of, uh, housing, uh, yep. this style, but I don't think you're going to find it Wichita, Kansas, you know, in a major yeah. way, <laughs> you know, it's just, I don't, I, you know, it's just probably not going to happen that way. Would, would you um, agree that that's probably true? Yeah. Yeah. Broadly, I definitely agree that it's true. Uh, which is why, uh, what bungalow is doing in the U S is, is fairly interesting because what they do is they don't actually take up, you know, big buildings, you know, as such. But what they do is that they take up four bedrooms and five bedrooms or six bedrooms and they really take up, you know, the large, uh, you know, apartments or, you know, like uh, villa projects and they kind of, you know, put five strangers into one house. So uh, is it co-living is really a question to ask, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like five people living together. So it's not like, you know, two people sharing a flat. It's still, you know, maybe like five or six people staying together. And that might be a trend that we might see even in tier two cities, even if not just in the metropolitan uh, you know, parts of uh, parts of the country. But, you know, like flat sharing is, I think, definitely here to stay. Like for so many reasons, it makes sense. Um, yeah. But, you know, I think I definitely agree to your point that if I were a property manager or a rental manager, uh, I would definitely start thinking about co-living as well because there is a natural pull from a demand side as well. Uh, we are noticing that, you know, especially like, you know, if people are moving new cities and they're going into a new a town that they've never, um, you know, they've never been to before and, you know, they don't have people they know over there. Mm-hmm. Getting a space in a co-living gives you such a soft landing because it's not just the space anymore, right? Because you're actually getting access to an entire community of people, uh, you know, who you can who you can befriend, who you can speak to, who you, you know, who you can hang out with. And these spaces are, once again, they're kind of like made for, uh, you know, made for interaction, right? So it's not very uncommon where a lot of co-living spaces, they actually have a co-working, uh, you know, area as well, you know, in the common areas. So, you know, that if you want to work out of there, that's something that you can do. A lot of these spaces, uh, you know, they have kind of like a small cafeteria of sorts. Like, you know, if you want to grab food, you can do that as well. And they organize so many events. Uh, you know, they invite so many people from outside to come and, you know, be part of the facility that, mm-hmm. you know, once again, you get access to, you know, all of that. So it becomes really easy to have a soft landing in a new city if you get a space in a co-living. So that's the, on the demand side. Yeah. You know, that's definitely what's been, you know, moving people towards co-living as well. So it's it's happening really fast. Uh, it's happening all over the world, and I don't think the U.S. market is going to get you know left behind too um, you know by too much. So I, I really do see that over the next three years, uh, co-living is definitely going to become fairly huge in the U.S. Uh, the existing operators, as I said, they have a lot of supply that's going to come onto the market over the next few years. So that in itself is going to give a huge boost uh, to the co-living industry, and I wouldn't be surprised if we see a lot more operators enter the market as well. Yeah, I, I I tend to agree with uh, quite a bit of that there. Um, where do you see, um, you know, w- w- for for you specifically for the house monk, what's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what's the fastest growing market for you guys, and and or what's one market you're you're gonna be pursuing the hardest in the next year or two? Oh, um, we actually went. Uh, so we've started getting some customers in Europe. And we're very excited by what we're seeing over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Europe market is um, is not huge, but it's not small either. It's somewhere, you know, in, uh, I would say it's right in the middle. But what's very fascinating is that buying patterns of European companies is very different from both US and India uh, in the sense that they're 
already using software, which is very similar to you know the market in the US. Mm. But they still want to meet someone before they buy, which is very similar to India. Yeah. So you have to like kind of like you know figure out how do you uh, get them to trust you, you know, before you actually try to make the sale. Yeah. Um. And you know, especially given that our labor is so expensive in Europe, that immediately you know gives you uh, that gives you know software a lot of value. Right, so we're very excited by Europe, and we have a few customers already, but we really want to double down on that market over the year, over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I think you're right. There's probably quite a bit of opportunity there, and of course, you know, uh, the the density. While it may not be the the level of India, you know, you do yeah. have those concentrated densities um, right. that that can, for a service such as this, you know, really help that with early stage growth. Um, yep, yep. well, I'm going to, I'm going to keep us shifting here. Uh, we're, we're sure. coming in towards the tail end of the show and, mm-hmm. uh, always like to, uh, make sure that we, we hit on the standard questions that I like to go over the, the okay. uh, and so that's going to bring us right into one of my favorite segments of the show. Uh, mm-hmm. we call this for the future. So for the wow, future okay. is where I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. AJ, are you ready mm-hmm. to play? Ooh, wow, yes. <laughs> All right, <laughs> question number one. Uh, what does the house monk, excuse me, <clears throat> what does the house monk look like one year from now? Mm-hmm. Uh, one year from now, uh, we see ourselves being more global than we are today. Uh, so currently, uh, as I said, we're, we're in eight countries, but you know, co-living is happening in about like 40 countries right now. Yep. So we see an increase in the number of uh, countries that we're going to have clients. We also see ourselves going deeper into some of these markets. So as I said, we have a few clients in the US and a few in Europe, but we want to go much, much deeper. Uh, so both in terms of number of customers and the spread of the customers, we see an increase in that. Uh, we've also started looking at the opportunity in student housing quite seriously. Because uh, you know, student housing has become you know, fairly big. I mean, it's an existing market, but you know, it's become fairly big uh, you know, in itself. And the student housing movement is now finally hitting Asia as well. A lot of big companies are being set up. A lot of purpose-built student accommodations are, you know, hitting the market. So we see a very interesting opportunity there as well. Mm. So I think that, that that's another thing that you might notice us doing, uh, you know, going further into, or actually like, you know, getting the intros into the student housing market. Hey, yeah, you know, I don't know if this is just a US thing, but I have noticed that a big trend, and I don't know how big this market is, <clears throat> and because I'm not really in it. Uh, but I've noticed for the last year, maybe two years, uh, a significant increase in what is billed as luxury student housing. Mm-hmm. Is that a U.S. only thing? No, I think uh, so. I think we have a proxy for that uh, in India and Asia as well, uh, where typically the student housing has a local housing and a foreigner housing. Right, so typically the foreigner housing is more upscale. It's kind of like the super premium version of the hostel. But okay. Typically, that's that, that's meant for you know people who are coming from wealthier countries or even for wealthier students, uh, you know, for them to you know get the, get that accommodation. And then there's a more pedestrian you know hostel or a dormitory which is for. That's where I would uh, be staying. Yeah, that, that's where I see it as well, man. I, I, I would be staying in the guest quarters of the pedestrian place. <laughs> Like this is the house where like you, I would be doing the co-living with the, the building maintenance crew. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, so uh, that is the thing. So it's not just okay. the US. Uh, all right, yeah. Um, all right, question number two. I'm going to change it a little bit just for this episode. What does the co-living market look like one year from now? 
Um, I think a year from now, uh, definitely there's going to be a lot of growth, but uh, I don't think it's going to be, uh, we're going to see as gigantic numbers globally as we saw over the last couple of years. Because in China, it is obviously starting to slow, right? It's, it's, it's pretty yep. huge already. So I, I guess it's going to slow down. So from a global perspective, next year, when we come out with the report, you might not see a significant increase. But yep. what I'm very excited by is what's happening in the US and Europe. Because in 2020, like we're expecting at least um, and about 50% growth uh, in the number of people staying in co-livings in both of these markets. Wow. Yeah, because a lot of lot of inventory is expected to hit, um, you know, hit uh, hit the market. So I'm, I know that Common has a couple of facilities which are coming up. Star City has a, uh, has a couple of facilities which is coming up. Quarters have a couple of facilities which are coming up. So there's a lot of inventory that's going to hit the market in 2020. So I'm yep. very excited to see, uh, you know, the growth in US and Europe over the over the next year. Wow. Yeah. All right. Uh, question number three: What's one industry trend you think will continue, but mm-hmm. you wish would go away? Oh wow! <clears throat> this is across the real estate industry or specific to co-living. You know, uh, I, I generally leave it nice and broad because I want to see how people answer it. Uh, you can apply any filter to this you'd like. Um, I think maybe touching back on the real estate broker market, uh, I think the trend of brokers being pivotal to real estate transaction, uh, I think that's that's here to stay. But I really wish uh, agents would not charge a commission. Uh, I would really like to see a brokerage market where uh, you know, agents charge a flat fee, whether it's mm-hmm. for selling a house or whether it's for, you know, renting a house because their input does not really depend, you know, whether you're selling an apartment for, you know, half a million or two million, I don't think the increase in effort justifies a 4X commission, you know, for the latter compared to the former. I think either way, it should be maybe like $5,000 or $10,000 or, you know, whatever the amount is going to be. Yeah. Uh, I would really like to see, uh, you know, the commission structure change in the brokerage market. Uh, n- not based on a percentage of the transaction, but move it on to more of a flat fee. Yeah, that'll be interesting because uh, obviously, especially in the U.S., that um, you know that commission model is mm-hmm. one of the ways that you know it's hidden as it's baked into the price. Uh, yeah, and if yeah, you were yeah. to fundamentally change that, it could be. Um, it'll make things interesting. That that there's no yeah. way around that. I think Redfin has given it a shot earlier. Uh, and I saw a couple of, uh, you know, like rental brokerage companies that tried this a few years ago. But uh, I, I guess the brokerage market is too big and it's too powerful, you know, to completely change and, you know, like completely disrupt, you know, from the ground up. But I really wish someone can achieve that. Because I think yeah. if you move on to a model like that, that gives a better future, I feel, for the brokerage industry than the path that it's currently on. Got it. All right. Question number four uh, for the future. Uh, what's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of technological advances? Oh, wow. Uh, um, I'm sure this is already a fairly big trend uh, in the U.S. where you know, people typically make um, you know, rental payments online. Uh, but for the rest of the world where people are still giving checks and they're still transacting in cash, uh, I think that shift is going to happen very, very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, people will start paying through, you know, online sources. It's, it's, it's already happening here. It's not like, you know, we're too far behind. But possibly maybe like 50-60% of the market is transacting online and possibly maybe like, you know, the remaining market is paying through checks or through cash. Um, but I think that's going to 
you know like move heavily on to tech uh, on to tech um, you know in the next next couple of years maybe so you know moving rental transactions online is something that uh, you know i'm looking forward to yeah there there was a report that just came out this week that uh, in the us from january to october alone mm-hmm. so just the first 10 months of the year of 2019 mm-hmm. over 519 billion dollars was paid in rent. Wow. And uh, so you can see why there's a race. Ah, who yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Who, who's going to dominate that market? Ah, you know, so whenever I keep seeing reports from other industries that say, hey, you know, like we're a hundred billion market, we're, you know, we're this size, like whether it's e-commerce, whether it's, uh, whether it's retail, whether it's, uh, I, I can't help but laugh because in real estate, like I'm not used to seeing small numbers. Right when you start looking at the size of you know the the broad <laughs> rental market or you know what's how big is the housing market or you know a, a brokerage market like any number that I see like I've not seen numbers smaller than ten twenty billion and something like what you're saying right now that you know close to half a trillion has been paid as rent in the first nine months I'm not surprised at all it's a it, it is a crazy yeah it's a, it's a it's a it's a big number and that's why you know when I when I talk to people about what we do and mm-hmm. they're like oh so you, you you help landlords take rent online. Well, yeah, if that's all you see, you're seeing just a small piece of this because yeah. it's yeah, not yeah. just about the rent transaction. There's, right. there's other transactions that are tied to that rent transaction. And just yep. think about it. If that's 33%, because that's a rule of thumb in the US, it's one third yeah. right. of your, your rent should be no more than one third of your, your take home, right. you know, your monthly income. Yep. Yep. So, so, so if you, if you think about that, that means that that portion of the population has a take home ideally of no less than 1.5 trillion. Yeah. 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 So all of the other purchases and transactions around yep. those households, like that's yep. what's at stake. That's what yeah. the, that's the true big opportunity. Yeah. And for, you know, as segmented as the market is, it means it's truly open. Yep. And, you know, that's why I get excited for it. Cause I'm like, well, we have a, we have an opportunity to really bring this and bridge a lot of that segmentation, make this easier, bring a more seamless and, and enjoyable yep. experience to everybody. It, it's not just rental management. Uh, we start calling it life cycle, uh, lifestyle management. Yeah. There is so much of what people do revolves around the house that they stay in. And, yeah. uh, you know, you have a chance to impact how they live. So there, there's Absolutely. so much more you can do. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Well, Hey, we're going to wind down here. we got the last three questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and AJ, these are more about you. So our listeners get to oh, learn okay. about you, uh, specifically. Uh, first one here is what are you reading? Oh, right now uh, I'm reading this book called, uh, from impossible to inevitable. It's uh, it's a book by uh, Aaron Ross and Jason Lemkin. Uh, it kind of helps uh, SaaS founders like myself understand how do you you know build out a better revenue pipeline and how do you keep uh, you know subscription revenue coming in. It's a very very interesting book. I would strongly recommend to everyone. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have heard of this and I've seen this before. Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever considered it, but until now, with your recommendation, I've just added that to my wish list. Yeah, yeah, you should, you should. <laughs> All right, question number two, who are you learning from? Hmm. A lot of people, 
um but i think in general i've been learning from a lot of people on the internet especially on linkedin um or maybe like you know i can give a shout out to colin cadmus uh, i think he's the vp of sales at aircall and he keeps coming out with a he's lot the of vp of sales at, i'm sorry which was the company uh aircall okay and he he's come out with a lot of interesting content around how do you structure your sales team how do you uh, how do you ensure that you know you can sign deals faster how do you reduce your sales cycle and so on and so forth a really interesting guy uh, you know who have been learning a lot from all right and then uh question number 3 this is the final of the last three uh what inspires mm-hmm. you oh um uh, man so uh, broadly i'm very much a, a real estate tech guy uh, i really 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 like being in this space So what I really like so you know uh, a lot of my friends find this very weird but uh, for a vacation or you know for a holiday I actually like going to big urban cities like I don't like you know going for a retreat uh, you know to a beach or to a mountain I really like going to big cities I like seeing big buildings you know like I I like everything about <laughs> Come to Chicago <laughs> <I> like, man <laughs> Yeah I I will I will definitely definitely Yeah 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 so I uh, I really like everything about real estate I like tall buildings I like skyscrapers I like the history behind it um so something that really does inspire me is such a huge real estate industry and it's moved so slowly on technology adoption mm. and uh, cuz you know when you compare what's the effect of technology on let's say the retail industry uh, it's a lot right so much yeah. of the supply chain is already you know, on the tech platform you know it's uh there's so much happening here the impact is very real even on manufacturing you know the impact is very real but real estate has been so slow to move on technology but i think mm-hmm. the industry is starting to wake up right now uh, i think 10 years from now we're going to see a very 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 different real estate industry at least from a process and you know internal perspective where technology is just going to help shape so many different aspects of how this industry functions and that is something that i'm very very inspired by well, very cool um AJ, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you sharing, uh, and also appreciate the uh, the shout out in in the uh, global co living report. You know, we'll make oh, sure yeah. we link that up and get that out Definitely. to people. Um, before we sign off here, uh, if people want to get in touch with you or they want to learn more about the House Monk, uh, mm-hmm. where do they go? How do they do that? Oh, you can always drop me an email on uh, AJ at thehousemonk dot com. or you can just visit our website www.thehousemong.com and there are multiple ways to get in touch with us from there very cool way well, we're going to sign off yeah. facebook here and uh we'll pull the show to a close and uh, i'll catch up with you afterwards as soon as we uh stop the recording and appreciate your time here and uh, until then we'll check in later fantastic thank you so much Nate for your time and thanks to the audience for listening as well Well, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening to the Technest podcast. Hey, don't forget you can get on the email list so you never miss an upcoming episode. That's technest.io. That's T E C H N E S T dot I O. Get on the email list. Uh, go to the App Store, whether you found us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you found us. Leave us a five star review and share it with your friends. And if you've got a guest or someone that you'd like to recommend, or if you think that you'd be a great guest on the show, hey, send me an email, Nate at realteampanda.com. That's Nate at realteampanda.com. See you guys later.